Welcome to the Agency Exits podcast. This week, we're talking to Jason Stogsdill, and he ran Traffic Titans, which was a lead generation agency. And in this conversation, you're going to have a bunch of really great takeaways. First of all, the importance of niching down and making your agency very specific to a specific kind of customer and what that can do to the trajectory of the business. The second thing is a way that he changed his relationship and his billing relationship with his clients to make them completely price insensitive. He was hitting up against a ceiling of retainers and he flipped it on its head and was able to be incredibly profitable without having the issues that a lot of us have, which is we just can't wring any more out of these relationships. He also talks about what to do when you get a pile of money. And we talk about some mistakes and some smart ways of handling that when you do have a big pile of money. And he talks about how he got sold and how he got to that point, even though he, like I, am an introvert. So you don't normally think of those people as going out into the world and trying to promote their own business and sell their own business. So we talk a little bit about how we approach that and how we approach networking as introverts. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Let's jump right in. Hi, welcome to Agency Exits, where you'll hear insider stories about how agency owners built and sold their businesses. Today, I'm here with Jason Stogstill and of Traffic Titans. So welcome, Jason. Hey, Raj. Thanks a lot. Nice to be here. Appreciate you having me on. It's great to have you. Let's just kick it off with the good stuff. What caused you to start an agency from the get-go? These things just tend to snowball over time, right? I don't know. I'd have to go way back when I started in marketing. So where could that be? I ran my first Google ad just as an individual. I think it was in 2000 and I want to say 2005 for just a, another business I was trying to do. And Google ads, I think was pretty new. So that was like a little touch of advertising and we can get into this, but once upon a time I was kind of wanting to be a filmmaker, had all these video skills. I was teaching myself, went to school actually for theater. So very much like creative person. But then I started getting these digital skills, learning filmmaking because I was interested in that. I wanted to then make money with them because I was at that young age where, hey, I need to hustle. I need to make money. What can I do? And advertising is those people are more willing to pay than you producing a film. So that was my entrance into marketing. And then it just evolved over time. I worked at a television advertising agency called Via Media. I had moved from New York back to Kentucky, and I was very thankful at the time I could even work in a marketing job, but I was shooting video and editing video, so that was a segue there. But these things continue to morph, but stay in the lane of, okay, I'm in marketing, I'm doing creative. And then I got the bug in 2000, I think it was 2008, that you could make money online. And it's a the dangerous first time, bug. <laughs> yeah, we've all probably got bit by that bug at one point. But that kind of the dream of, oh, I'll just be able to have a website where traffic's coming to it and there are ads on the website and I don't have to do anything anymore. It just makes me money. So <laughs> I think that's how a lot of us in performance marketing got started. There was a, I forget the name of her different multiple businesses but a lady named lisa she had a website called leg dash exercises so leg and then the dash exercises and it was a site that was making money with adsense and Mm -hmm. i was learning about this whole world and the listeners can probably look this up but there was some old school kind of all-in-one thing called site build it Mm -hmm. web hosting a website builder this is before i ever even knew about wordpress 
So I was going down that rabbit hole of, oh, I can just make money online. So I've had that drive as an entrepreneur, but that didn't necessarily work out where I just sailed away to the beach somewhere and just collected a check. But when you pursue something like that, you start getting more skills. Mm -hmm. That kind of morphed into, oh, I can build WordPress sites for people. I've got a client and I'm going to shoot them a video and develop a WordPress site and I can charge them for that. What else can I do? I can run ads. Mm -hmm. I ran ads several years previously for my own business. Okay, I understand that this is something I can do as well. And started off as a generalist, right? I left my job at Via Media in 2008. I'd been there for probably less than two years, but I was just like a freelancer, just offering all these digital marketing or creative services. And then linked up with my partner who became my business partner, just really because I needed, he was a young guy, much younger than me, just another mm -hmm. hungry, ambitious person who was like, feed me some work. So we started hustling and going, okay, we can get some clients and we don't have to go to a nine to five anymore. And this is like off and on over the years, we got to a point where we had a little roster of clients. We weren't making a lot of money. It was really just two fr freelancers collaborating, doing everything they could and coming out with like more money than you could at most jobs available, right. having more autonomy, things like that, but not really scaling anything where anyone's going to buy this, right? It's like, there's nothing to sell. It's just us working for a few clients and glad that we have them. And then that all, I'm giving you the whole timeline so you can dissect this later probably. But 2017 is when I went deeper into media buying through a group that I know you're in as well, Ad Skills. Started learning yep. from Justin Brooke. Realized that, wow, people can really take this media buying thing. And if you know what you're doing, you can go to a high level. Because I know at the time, Justin had a case study where he was spending 70K a day on Google display ads. And mm -hmm. then when you start to learn, oh, I can bill a percent of ad spend. Okay, this can get pretty high. If I, of course, not every client's like that. Some clients are like, oh, they can't spend anything. This is not scalable. But that was my next pivot all within this lane of digital marketing services. But it wasn't mm -hmm. really until 2019 where all of this started to gel together and we had something that took traffic titans to the point where we could make a significant amount of money and then also exit the agency. So that's like a point by point history of how I pivoted and really the whole time was looking for like, how do I scale? Right. Cause you, we can all get buried under a bunch of work and go, man, there's really no, I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I started right. connecting the dots around 2019. And I think it was 2021 already when we had exited the agency. Yeah. It was I'm starting to lose track of time. It's been in the last two years or so something. What marked the transition from you, from the two freelancers and you're doing the work, but there's nothing there. What in your mind marked the beginning of creating enterprise value, something that somebody else would want that was bigger than just labor? Yeah, that's a good question. There was this point where we could divide it up into really, I think in businesses like this, there's three things going on, right? There's you're marketing yourself because you want to get clients. You're trying to attract attention, even doing something like a podcast opportunities can arise. You start getting inbound and then you have to find out if the relationship is right. So that element of sales, right? So a sales mm -hmm. call, but then <laughs> there's fulfillment. So I see each one of those, if we want to simplify it as a full-time job. Right. And when mm -hmm. you get really busy with fulfillment, you're like, you stop marketing yourself and then you stop doing sales and then you lose a couple of clients and you're like, now I need to hop back over in this other boat and you start having that vicious cycle. So I think 
you, at some point, if this is the route you want to go down, you become forced to go, okay, how can we bring some other people on in this? Cause someone else needs to fulfill. Let me hand some reins off and I'll still have strategic oversight. So very much still finding our way, no master plan of, Oh, this is a genius plan that I just know is going to work. It's just, you're figuring it out as you go. But then we started working with freelancers, right? Wherever they were, did they have a, a credible background and they understood the type of ads we were doing and test them out, see how they work out. And it's like, Oh, okay. I found a reliable guy. Here's another guy. Let's get another client and bolt that on. So we went in that stage for a while, but it really wasn't until 2019 when I decided to niche down in an industry because another problem that you start to have is, Oh, we've got all these clients in different niches and there's a lot of startup work trying to even figure out like, how do I what are some of the go-to tools here that's going to help us win for the client? That was an issue. And then further niching down, we became known for an ad network, which was YouTube. Of course, we could run all mm -hmm. the other ad networks, but it was just consolidating the things we did down into those categories. And I think it takes a leap of faith because then you start rejecting other work. You got to, it's like kind of a bridge to cross to go, Oh, I'm telling this client. No. Whereas before we had always said yes to anybody that would wave a dollar. Yeah, we can do that. We're raising our hand. So that was like the first inkling of, okay, now we can start to scale a little bit because we're doing the same thing pretty much for each client. That was key. I think that's one of the big mindset shifts that a lot of agencies go through. And I, even this morning, I talked to an agency owner. It's a seven-figure agency, and they haven't figured out how to say no. And they've been stuck at seven figures, pretty much the same revenue level for six years. And I was telling this might be one of the reasons why. It's like your margins are thin. You're always having trouble staffing. It's because you're taking from all different industries. You're relearning from the beginning. You're not really building any intellectual property inside the business. And this niching concept, I just love to hammer on it because people like to be generalists and don't want to turn away work. How did you get yourself comfortable with turning away the work? Were the margins good enough? Were, was it just a realization that this is the way to go? How did you come to that? I think it's never really easy, especially like when you're in that position, you just see like anybody that comes to you, you're like, okay, that's money in our pockets and having a scarcity mentality, like, Hey, we might not get another chance to get a client for a while. And going back to that thing of the three kind of roles, like maybe you've started neglecting marketing your own agency and someone's thrown you a bone. And it is actually very difficult because I've had people recommend clients and it almost feels insulting to say, Hey, we don't work with those type of clients. Cause who are you to say you don't work with because <laughs> I've been a service provider. <laughs> yeah. I'd work. I had been offered. These are great connections. It would be like, as if like you, you and I have chatted before and we get along well and you brought someone to me, like I would, it would, I would feel guilty and bad to say, Hey Raj, we don't really do that. And then it seems so arrogant. I think that's a huge huge struggle. So that's another side of it too, where you default into, I'm not going to tell Raj, no, he, he's looking out for me. He's trying to send me a client and the client mm -hmm. he's sending me is, I know who this person is. They're well known. It just seems absurd to go, no, but that was a hard move. That was a very hard move, yeah. but I actually started doing that. I started telling people, I give them my little explanation. No, we only do financial. And then the other, if you start immersing yourself in that world, you'll start discovering new things. If you start going to masterminds and conferences and mm -hmm. say you're working in a, you're helping local service providers, they probably have conferences and there's probably podcast, like you could go a mile deep into that world and go, wow, this is like, you're unearthing. It's, did you ever see the Goonies? 
Of course. <laughs> exactly. They go, there's this whole world. Such a good reference. I, yeah. I think you, you start to see that, oh, there's this whole world here that if I was staying on the surface, I wouldn't really realize that. But I think it's just step by step where, you know, if you recommend someone and they're trying to really force themselves to niche down, they're going to have to say, hey, Raj, no, here's what we're doing. <laughs> and, um, it's a perceived kind of, but, I still perceive that I was being them. arrogant. And I'm like, I don't know if these people yeah. understand that it's tough. Whenever I had that situation, what I would take it upon myself to find them the right solution. So what I would do is go and find another niche provider that is the perfect niche provider for them, because I definitely believe that vertical specialization or horizontal specialization. So it could be YouTube, it could be Mm -hmm. financial, or it could be financial and YouTube. But I would do that. Like if you send someone to me, I would do that legwork and find that person because that relationship is worth so much. But to me, that's more valuable because it preserves your brand value. And it also teaches someone who refers to you, this is exactly what you do. So they refer that much more. I just find it's only a win. Yeah. And I don't think I did that every time, but I have done that a lot though. And what I've found after time is you start to develop this nice network, right? People Mm -hmm. wonder what is networking? It can just be like bugging people on LinkedIn. Hey, I want to be part of your network. (laughs) That's a network, but also if, man, if you've sent people clients and they're like, thank you, Raj, and this client's paying me however much a month and they have been for two years, then you're the greatest thing ever to them. And I've been in the fortunate position that it's either people I've hired, I've mentored, sent them referrals. They've sent me referrals. It's a very fluid game, right? I, there are people that I go to and say, Hey man, I need help with this. Or can you give me some advice? Or if you can refer any of these type of people, but then there are people who come to me <laughs> for the same thing. So it's a never ending right. kind of circle. But after you, you've been doing that for a while and you step back and you reflect, you're like, Hey, I've actually got a pretty good network and I could solve a lot of marketing problems through, I'm starting to call this the, oh, what is that show? Pawn stars, right? <laughs> if someone comes to you and, Hey, I need you to authenticate, or I want to sell you this autograph from the early 1700s of from England and from this person, right? Oh, I've got a guy down the street who can authenticate that and tell me what it's worth. So the guys at Pawn Stars, they don't know all that. They don't have all the knowledge, but they can get it pretty quickly. And I think that's super important in our industry is to actually have a network. And because everyone wants to think it's all about geniuses, but it's really more (laughs) of a networked mind, right? I may come to you as I learn more about the network that you have. That's a huge piece of it. Instead of just being this reclusive genius that just knows Facebook ads, YouTube ads, this, that all in your own brain. So I think that's super important too. And it makes it. So the way that I've always thought about networking, or at least not always, I learned to think about networking is that how can I do someone else a favor? So when I stopped thinking as an introvert about, I hate going to these networking events and I hated shaking all the hands and making small talk. When I became curious about other people and what their goals were, and always in the back of my head, who can I connect this person with? That reframe for me really helped because it, at least again, as the introvert, I didn't like doing this because it felt like I was being cheesy or asking for something. But instead, it's just being genuinely curious about what's this person's goal? What do they want to achieve? And how can I help them achieve it, even if I never get anything out of it? I think that reframe, which I'll admit, it took a long time to get to helped me on the networking front. I think you and I have some things in common then. Yeah. I'm the same way. I get very exhausted. Like I can 
go and be outgoing and friendly for a span of time. And then I want to go back to my room and like in the middle of the day and not do anything because I'm like getting mentally exhausted. And like you, I can question the point. I'm like, Oh, why am I doing this? But I think you're right. If you reframe it to where now it all makes sense to your introverted mind. Oh, now there's a point to this and it's actually productive. And Sometimes I think it's hard for people to take that long view. They're like, well, that doesn't help me right now, Raj. That's probably going to help me in six months from now. So <laughs> that's the other <laughs> thing too is let's think a little bit long-term, but I don't know. It becomes fun, right? If you make a connection, you're like, well, I probably couldn't have done much with that myself. Mm-hmm. You pass it along to someone else and they're thrilled with it. And then when you look back and reflect, you're like, oh, someone threw me a bone and that ended up being great. So I think there's, I think this industry is not that big either. Digital marketing, like we feel like it is, and we might see someone on a stage or keynoting, but that's just our own, in our own little world. Whereas they're not Dwayne the Rock Johnson with who knows how many Instagram followers. It's just, we feel like everything's big and elite, but it's a small industry though. It's small. And the interesting thing and why I started this podcast is people don't share. It's this culture of everyone pretending that they're more successful than they are. Maybe that's all, maybe that's all of business, but pretending they're more successful than they are not really sharing the information. That's why I'm glad folks like you will come on here and actually just share, okay, behind the scenes, what is actually going on? What worked, what didn't work? Yeah, I like that. And I think I'm in a good spot for this too, because I've I think of what little ego I had in certain areas or hopes for just having looking great out there. It helps us all. People view us as like skilled or an expert or successful. But if you're, if you're more open and you share the truth and you're like, Hey, I'm really good at this thing, but I never Mm -hmm. figured this out or this didn't go well, or this went wrong, or I don't know what to do here. Then that lends actually more credibility to, Hey, this one thing, we're probably one of the best. And here's why not because I Mm -hmm. just think so, but just because like we niched down and obsessed over this and no one else really did that. It gives it more credibility versus, okay, now I have to believe this person's a magician and they can do everything. I think it helps you make better connections and it does. And actually perversely, and this is going to sound like heresy, but it actually can help in an acquisition. So when the way that my acquisition went, my buyer knew everything under the hood, including where all the skeletons in the closet were. And I was very open with it before the transaction and showed them everything because I didn't want to go down the road to getting an offer and essentially having it fall apart during diligence because they didn't know something. So I was very transparent about the whole process. And for me, that actually worked well because I was able to structure something that addressed those risks. And when the financial discussion came about, I was willing to say, okay, about the following issues, how do we structure this in a way that we're both going to win? I know some people would say that's bad negotiating tactic, but I think it depends on the size of the organization and what those skeletons in the closet might be. Yeah. I like that. It went that way for me too, because going back to it being a small industry here, we got inquiries from different people that I knew who all these people were and met them at conferences, had collaborated. I had bought traffic through them in the past, had been their client and that, but there was, I don't know if it's still going on, but like a wave of people looking to do roll-ups, which I don't understand much about that and their goals with that, but I get the principle, but it it was maybe a bug that bit people and there was a lot of Mm -hmm. of inquiries and you feel like at some point it's going to get come down to a full discovery anyways. But I just like being open with people as well, because I don't know for me, like I'm not 
fully motivated by money. I want to have money. I want to do things. Money to me is more like a video game score Mm -hmm. because materially, especially now, I think I burned myself out on a lot of that stuff, like where it just required more maintenance than I thought and more things to think about. Now I'm like pretty, pretty simple. So that's another thing that I don't know if I'm a great negotiator. I'm just like, Hey, I want this person to be happy with it. I'll get what it's worth. And if you're having a discussion where the person doesn't even want to, if you're looking at something honestly and you're like, Hey, this is what this is worth. Here's the problems, but I know it's worth this because of X, Y, Z. And if you're in mm-hmm. the habit of being brutally honest with yourself, it sounds like you assess yourself a lot too. And I've been applying that to myself more in the last, the last year of Gary Vee's always talking about self-awareness. <laughs> so, okay, there are actually things I'm not good at and I can't really have people think I'm good at those things because that leads to disappointment, but just, being more realistic about it but as long as you getting what you think is fair otherwise i think the whole negotiation would just fall apart anyways i think it's also a matter of it's hard to think that way it's hard to self-reflect in the fog of war when you're either growing very quickly or you're struggling with sales so i think i've gotten more reflective post-sale which is a good thing but it is hard just to acknowledge anyone who's watching this and saying i don't have time for that i don't think i had a lot of time for that during the the growth phase of the agency. That makes sense. I keep coming back to that point of, I think this is extremely valuable for people to look in the three areas of marketing, sales, and fulfillment. Like with just fulfillment, that would be hard. Like you could be a white label agency, but you're still doing a little marketing because I would have to market myself to say, I'm marketing myself to you. Hey Raj, we can do all of your Google ads for you. We'll be a white label. I'm still Mm -hmm. marketing to you and selling you on that. So I, I feel like you... Even if you say you're all fulfillment, it's like very hard to completely get out of marketing and sales. But right. with marketing, you can be all in on that. And I tend to like the marketing better. If we if we were trying to sell something on this podcast, I would be enjoying this because I'm like, oh, I'm having a conversation. We're doing something creative. People are going to like this, that, that type of thing. I like the marketing activities, but I actually, the fulfillment is where I struggle more. Like as an individual, I'm fine, but I had a partner and was just talking to him earlier today, but he leans into stuff more like he'll sit down and write a manual for a team for the team, like it's nothing. He can do this daily, mm-hmm. sit down for the next two hours and write out a manual, a process manual. I hate that kind of stuff. But when you start growing a team, like you need it. But I would find myself enjoying the sale or the marketing aspect more, drumming up business. So that, that that's something interesting too, because that's what I'm looking into more now because I actually don't want to scale up. I just want to mm-hmm. operate small and lean more as an individual, partnerships possibly, promoting other people's stuff. So an affiliate would be the perfect example. I'm marketing something. I get the commission, but I'm never touching the fulfillment. That's probably something to reflect on too, like those type of activities. Cause you know, one can suffer like the marketing because you're too busy fulfilling, you lose clients, you got to go back to marketing type of thing. But I I don't think I I thought about that when I was in it as much. I was just like, oh, these are the things we need to do. But stepping back, I'm like, oh, I would have liked to have just made connections, helped us get clients, and then said the fulfillment, that's their problem. You know what I mean? Part of that is the intentionality because a lot of folks, so it sounds like you're somewhat an accidental agency owner, right? Mm -hmm. Half took you there and then it evolved into that. And some folks are very intentional. I spoke yesterday with another guest who he knew from from when he was a very young guy that he wanted to run a design agency. That is what he knew. 
you're more of the accidental. But in both cases, the acquisition wasn't always something that was on the radar. So it wasn't a building towards this outcome. And as a result, it, it, you stumble into it, which is fine. But I think in a lot of cases, uh, unless you've thought very intentionally and structured things in a way that would be desirable for an acquirer, if you haven't done that homework, you're going to be forced to, oh, I've got only one suitor at the dance and you just go with it and it's good or it's not. And then you might have to wait another couple of years for another chance versus being more intentional about it. Yeah. And that's one of those things where I forget where this comes from, but those quadrants of there's the immediate and important, but that's something that's mm -hmm. important, but it's not urgent or yeah, urgent exactly. is the word. It's important, but it's not really urgent because you're like, I just need to here's what we have going on this week and we got to get this client, we got to do this and that. And it's, it's important, but it's not urgent. So mm -hmm. you have to have, I think some mental space carved out for yourself to go, Hey, let me think about the larger picture. Cause like you said, it's the fog of war. You're in the middle of it all. So I sympathize. I think it's actually hard and rare to think about this in such a calculating fashion, because it seems mm -hmm. like we're trying to make a buck, trying to create jobs in the sense of a design agency. Hey, I was able to hire two designers and now I've got mouths to feed and we got to worry about this. It's a lot of pressure stacking up on you. So I can understand how right. people never get that reflective of I'm going to structure this, but you need to though. It's yeah. that those are the most essential things that you can work on things that are important, but not urgent. Th those are the biggest mm -hmm. needle movers really. So that's what we're talking about here. I think. So maybe share a little bit about the fact that you ran a traffic agency and what that meant for the business as a whole, because some folks will take retainers and live off of the retainers and some folks will take a percentage of spend and some folks will be on a CPA basis. You've gone through some evolutions on that. I think it would be really valuable to hear what you learned on that path and what that meant in terms of the final exit. Yeah, this is the really fun part because <laughs> this is where the math can, things can really change. So, the math I'd learned or when starting media buying is, oh, you can charge 15% of ad spend and then you have a declining tier to reward people for scaling up. And then the flip side of that too is if you're really scaling their spend up, when performance marketing, of course, the offer has to be converting. Unless you have mm -hmm. a client like Apple who's just going for share of voice and they're happy to just be getting brand awareness, but the companies I've dealt with, they all want to be, it's more direct response or I would say a performance mm -hmm. marketing. So if you're spending a million dollars a month, 15%, then you're billing them 150 K. Maybe that's no sweat for them, but they start to question it like, Whoa, this is getting expensive. And then they're, <laughs> I've always told people this, you can get fired for doing a bad job, but you can also get fired for doing too good of a job because they're like, wow, we didn't know you were going to scale our spend up to this level. And of course that means company growth. But if they were looking at the 15%, oh, okay, that's fine. They're calculating, all right, we're spending 50K a month. They've got their fee. And then you crack the code for them. And yeah. you have to worry about your, this really expensive line item. So that's why if you are doing a retainer based on spend, it makes sense to go in tiers. Okay. 15% up to hundred K. Then after that, I'm going to drop the next tier down to 12 and you've got something that kind of backs off a bit as the volume builds up. So we, we took the business as far as we could on the retainers. 
mm-hmm. but made some discoveries in running the traffic because some clients would also allow us to be affiliates. I'm talking about clients that spend millions upon millions a month, not just through us, but we're one of several agencies and affiliates. And then we noticed an opportunity because the clients we were working with, they also worked with affiliates where they just paid a CPA. And they didn't mind if we worked also as affiliates. So we could drive traffic. They're fine with that. And then we could also dabble around as affiliates. So affiliates are typically going to have their own properties, their own websites, their email list and things like that. And not necessarily just running the client links on ad networks. Full disclosure, they're completely fine with it. But I was always interested in that because if you could get a larger margin, and then you can mm-hmm. times that by volume, <laughs> then you have a chance to make a lot of money because as an agency, like I said, you're topped out at 15%. That's where you're starting. You're going down from there on percent of spend. And that's about the mm-hmm. max I've seen people get away with because you can become a big line item. So you have to deal with those margins. And we took it as far as we could when trying to get, my goal was always to get clients paying higher fees by winning for them. But like I right. said, there's that tipping point of, okay, now we're winning so much that it behooves them to go, okay, should we in-house this? What can we do here? Because we're paying out so right. much. Could we do a business maneuver? Even though these guys are doing great, can we circumvent them? So then we got into the CPA side with some of the clients and what we noticed on the ad network running the on the percent of spend that certain things were working well, but they might Mm -hmm. have us running through a funnel where we're doing lead gen and then to the offer. And that was the funnel. And here's the budget. Like the CPA side gave us more room to run. They'll take unlimited, they'll buy unlimited sales from us. So a lot of the offers we were promoting were anywhere from paying a hundred dollars all the way up to two fifty. but just in experimenting with just different tests on traffic. Oh, wait a minute we can run this straight to sale, not the lead gen component and get much larger margins, sometimes 50%. And Mm. that would go down as we would scale. But then we got to the point where we could do the max that we ever did with one client was 1200 orders a day. This is in the financial publishing space, which is like basically out of all of their different publishing imprints, a $2 billion company, we pushed an offer. They, Their offers and copywriters and imprints all would compete in the shared report. And they had many locations and you were big time if you could get up in the top 10. We took several offer or one offer in particular and pushed it all the way to number one. And they weren't really previously doing much with it. And that was just through being in the weeds, understanding what was working. So that mm-hmm. was the thing for us that unlocked a lot of money because now... <laughs> We can bill them unlimited money and they're happy to pay it. And then we got into other issues of, okay, we're running so much volume through now. Hey, can we invoice you guys weekly instead of monthly? Because we literally can't float this. Mm. That would be a tip I would give traffic agencies. It's a double-edged sword because I think that kind of thing makes your agency harder to sell if you're, if you're based on running traffic on traffic networks, not just because you have a site that has a lot of SEO, but you're running traffic to an offer and making a lot of money. Offers have a life cycle. Maybe it's a hot offer. Maybe crypto's hot and everyone's buying this, but that's eventually going to die off. So for saleability, it's actually, I would assume better to have a book of clients who are, they're going to pay you a certain amount, but you have 50 of those clients. But for us, it was more like a, we were more like a supernova and that aspect of we were able to make a lot of money based on that ride, which was right. really cool. 
We made a lot of, that was something smart. And I would advise other agencies, if you have some room for a little bit of play or you've got the team, like a guy who can make ads, a media buyer, some creative to start experimenting around if you have the money to do it. Because if you know mm -hmm. what you're doing, you can make a lot of money on those. But there's other intricacies and downsides to it. Not everything is a storybook because then it opens up other problems of now you're doing so well with that. Does this company want to reverse engineer you? It's just a higher threshold. Exactly. Oh, they're right. sending a thousand orders a day. Now they want to reverse engineer you because they assume you're making a good margin. So it always comes back to that. But in the meantime, you've made a lot of money. And if you have the resources, the team could be worth trying. If that's if mm -hmm. someone's so inclined to do that, because it worked really well for us. We were super well, affiliates. I think that it begs the, at a big picture for any agency, it begs the question, what are you building? Are you building for cash today or are you building an asset you're going to sell? And very often those two are quite separate. And a lot of agencies, owners I know, have neither. They've got a minimally cash flowing business today, which has no real equity value either. The question is, where are you going to plant your flag? Are you going to go Jason's route, what you did, and just, I'm going to suck every bit of cash knowing that the legs that any offer has might be a few months, maybe if you're lucky over a year, and I'm going to just take all the cash, realizing that when that goes away, my cash flows are going to go down and that's going to make my agency not look as attractive to a buyer. Yeah. Or am I going to go steady Freddy? I've got a stable of clients and that's what they're buying because a buyer is buying future cash flows. So if those cash flows, they know they're going to go away, that's going to impact your valuation. But in the meantime, Jason got to go and buy toys, as we'll talk about in a minute, with some of that cash flow. So it's a choice that you get to make, but make it intentionally is the takeaway on that one. Yeah, for sure. And there's different things I probably could have done, maybe invested it we had media properties that we were running it from, but they were like mm -hmm. shells. We were just sending the paid traffic. Mm -hmm. But I know your audience is probably just agencies of different kinds, like design agencies and you build funnels, run traffic, all kinds of different agencies. So they might have different strengths. We were all about traffic. You've got SEO agencies. If you took an SEO agency and you build up an authority site and that thing's going to run for years, and then you just have to plug in the hottest affiliate offers that in itself could be worth a lot of money. So it's, I always make these comparisons to MMA. I like watching MMA. I don't know if anyone gets them. I always assume <laughs> yeah, everyone's watching this, but it's because I've watched that whole evolution of not only do these guys have to be able to punch, now they got to be able to wrestle. Now they got to be able to do this, but there's just a right. lot of ways to win depending on <laughs> what do you lean into. So that, I think that's something you have to assess as well. And the things that we did made sense based on my DNA, we were running YouTube ad, paid traffic the whole internet marketing dream. So I got to live out my affiliate dream. It all makes sense in the roots. And psychologically, I was just drawn toward that rather than just being right. calculated. Like this is definitely the smartest thing. I was drawn by my interest and background that led up to that for better uh, or worse. Hey, it turned out, it turned out pretty good in the end because you doubled down on what your skill set was. But you always uh, look back maybe, and go, Oh, we could have done it better. We could have done yeah, it better. We, yeah. Hindsight is 2020 and all, but uh, maybe talk a little bit about some of the investments that you made because you guys were swimming in cash. So what did you decide to do with that? Yeah, I think that, and most people in business have at least heard of this problem where Someone gets money and they're like, well, now we don't know what to do with it. Now this is the burden of what do we do with the money and probably could have done things a lot smarter. And then some things that I was worried about would be irresponsible or, oh, we're, we don't really need this. That actually ended up pretty good. But we did different things. We bought an office. 
we were scaling our company up. So we started off at one point I was work from home, remote people. Then we got a co-working space. Then we got a long-term lease. And then we bought an office because we were very bought into just a physical office. Everyone in the same mm-hmm. room. And that was the answer to, oh, we're feeling stuck doing the remote thing. We couldn't get any traction. So let's shake things up, shake up the globe and try something else. We had a remote office as well in the Philippines for creative, which still operates mm-hmm. to this day. But we bought the office. In hindsight, we were scaling too much. We could have literally just stayed in a co-working space, had less employees. That would have been much smarter. But we were just on this train of, oh, we're going to do this. But we had the the office building. I think it was like 9,000 square feet and rented out different units and got into real estate. But then that opens up problems of now there are leaks. And I'm not the type of person. I don't like dealing with that stuff. I just like being in my own world. And then when real problems start happening and you got to get on the phone and call contractors who are unreliable, mostly my business partner did that. But I'm like, this all sounds good until you actually start doing it. But that was a sound right. investment. I put money in crypto, not a sound investment because there was a big drop off. Hopefully that'll come back around. And then the other kind of fun one that we did was we bought a sprinter van and it sounds funny, but it's the reasons for it. Okay. I'll list off. I'll give the pitch here of why we did it. And it actually turned out pretty good. We, there was that incentive from the government. If you have a vehicle for your business mm-hmm. over a certain weight, we were trying to th- think how to offset taxes and keep in mind, we've got weeks left before the end of the year. And we're like, what do we do? So we bought the sprinter van so we could have that incentive. Another way we sold ourselves on is, Oh, we have a team here. We'll go to outings, which we did. They loved. Mm -hmm. We felt cool because there's TVs and everything in there. Nice. And we did that and we rented it out because I've heard some people advising, like you can buy a sprinter and it'll cash flow itself because people rent these like little, we Mm -hmm. built a website for this thing. We called it penguin jets. We don't have it anymore, but I was nervous about that purchase, but I was like, I definitely want to offset taxes. But after everything played out, like changes in the economy, we sold that thing for more and we made money off of it the whole time. That felt like the slightly irresponsible purchase, which was better than my crypto, which the crypto is where I thought I was being all genius and collecting all the earnings. I forget like the yield off the crypto. Oh, wow. I'm making 20%. So sometimes the opposite plays out and you're humbled by that. It's like when I was a kid and I bought all these collectibles and kept them in the box, they were worthless. And then all the stuff I was actually playing with the Nintendo games, like these aren't, these are just something to play with. Now those are worth, could be worth a lot of money. Those are the collectibles. Yeah. The lesson here, don't follow, (laughs) would it be don't follow your intuition or I don't know. Whatever I'm thinking right now is the thing to do. It's probably the opposite will play out. I think that. I see people do this because you're, if things are going really well in the business, you feel like a genius and then you're like, I'm, I'm invincible. And then you right. do all these other things. And then it turns out that it's like, no, actually you're not invincible. And the better thing to do would be to double down, your, double down your time and your effort on the thing that's making you money now and just put the rest in a safe place until you have the time and space to think about it. I think that I've learned that again and again. When I sold, I just took the big check and it just went out of my sight. So I can't mess with it because my inclination would be to drop it on something which is probably not going to be fully well thought out. That's the ultimate golden nugget right there. That wins the prize. That's it. If you get to that point, remember this. Let this stick in your brain because, yeah, we <laughs> held on to some money, but I've had cryptos that have dropped. People know. I don't. It's too painful to talk about. Look at the market. They've all dropped and some of them dramatically. And I was... Right. 
over-indexing on that. I'm not a great investor. I'm good at what I do with mm-hmm. traffic, but I've, I have to admit, like I, if I would have got out of certain investments, I would have been a genius, <laughs> but I'm the <laughs> one that, Oh, I'm being Warren Buffett now. He says to hold on to it, but I'm not. Yeah. What the advice you just gave, I think is that would have that would have been everything to me if I would just known that and could have executed on it. Cause you've got to clear your head to and go, okay, let's set this aside. And the fact that we could have ran on less would have taken mm-hmm. pressure off and just bank aside money. Don't let everyone spook you. Just put it over there right. and give yourself time to really think and you'll do much better. But yeah, those are some of the things we did. So something that we did that I think was stupid in hindsight Of course, we were ambitious and just looking for ways to grow and do more and be driven and make moves and come up with the ideas that we thought would work at the time. It seemed smart, but we were in, but they really weren't, but we were in the financial publishing niche. So marketing financial Mm -hmm. newsletters, but then we decided to enter a partnership where we would become a publisher because Mm -hmm basically an offer owner. So like in the traffic world, you have people who are offer owners, whether that's a big company or individual or guru or influence. Mm-hmm. They have a course, they own an offer, lots of things to do around that, like optimizing it, the copy, does this thing even work? That's its own world. And then the other world is running the traffic to it mm-hmm. and they work in unison. But one thing we were always frustrated by was like, we just wanted more control over the offer. So we thought if we could make an offer really work, we can make all the money from it. Plus we're in control of it because a lot of times we're just working with whatever. And we said how these offers Mm -hmm. can die off, but we threw a lot of money at that and it wasn't a good plan. We were sold on how great it was going to be. And it's adjacent because it's in our lane, but it's different enough where all, it was a whole separate thing to build this offer up and the whole delivery, like things are always harder than you think they are (laughs) from just the outside. (laughs) And when you get into it, And that ended up just being a big waste. And of course, I always learn from things like that. But we threw money after that. Whereas if I feel if we would have just sat back and sat on our coffers more, we were pretty active in just trying things, investing, doing this and that, where I wish I would have taken the advice that you just gave and said, okay, everybody take a breath, remain calm. Let's just keep doing what we know. Let's keep everything pared down and not let things get too bloated and avoid these distractions, even if they make good logical sense. Like it takes a lot of discipline to be able to do that because sometimes you do need something a little different in innovation because in digital marketing, things can dry up and you can benefit from being an early mover. Like we rode that YouTube wave, but they've since changed right. the rules where we were running an hour long ads, driving people nuts. I've got one hour, the one that we ran the most traffic to 60 million views. We essentially rode a wow. wave there because YouTube eventually penalized the longer ads with higher costs mm-hmm. on them. I like to take credit for them doing that. Everyone's, you broke YouTube. <laughs> there's always a chance in digital marketing, like if you go way back, you hear about affiliates doing, oh, we were doing direct linking on Google search ads. And direct linking would right. be they just take the affiliate offer link and they're running a search ad and they're getting the hottest traffic and they're making a lot of money. But then Google turned against that because the main brand owner could be running an ad and then five affiliates, then all of Google's ads are leading in the same place, which is a bad experience. But there are these heydays that maybe you ride it for six months, a year, other people pile on, they ruin it. Like Gary V said, I keep quoting Gary V a lot. He's (laughs) doing a lot of good content, but marketers ruin everything. We pile on then that's no longer a go and things change. So you have to figure out when to innovate. Like when do you need that next thing? 
And then you also got to worry about, I don't know, there's a perfect science to this. Like when are my innovations actually going to take us down the wrong path (laughs) and waste (laughs) money? It could be more than we need to be wasting. Like, like you've got to, you've got to scale it in. Maybe Apple could do a bunch of R and D for a car and then decide not to release it. And they're fine. That's part of doing business. But as a small business owner, how much can of that can you do as well? Yeah. How much can you afford to risk on that? That's a good point. Yeah. Maybe let's talk a little bit about your acquisition itself, right? So we've talked about what got you there and some of the drivers of value for you personally and thinking about the agency. How did it come about? How do they find you and how did the transaction go? Yeah. StrikePoint Media acquired Traffic Titans. There's some PR articles out there on the web. If people just Google that, my partner actually showed up, was in all the pictures. Again, this will show that I'm an introvert, <laughs> like I'm named, but I'm not, I'm not pictured. <laughs> but just through discussions with the, the CEO there over the phone and that whole process you were talking about of kind of diving in deep, we've shown all the skeletons in the closet. Okay, here's what I think we have that's really valuable. And honestly, like full disclosure for us, we were wanting to get out by that point because the whole financial market, the time we're in right now, things have gone down, cryptos come down, the economy's gotten bad, ads are expensive, but we had all these fixed monthly costs where we really scaled up Mm -hmm. to, we scaled up our operations where I go back to, hey, we should just kept ourselves in check, just been in a co-working space. And we may have continued it that way, but we got to the point where we just wanted out from under the weight of all this because our revenue started coming down. We were still had revenue, but then Mm -hmm. our expenses ballooned up. We were trying this publishing thing and revealed all that openly and honestly, right? Because he needs to know that for it to make sense. I think some of the most attractive things, we had a office in the Philippines that we did like a lot of video work since we were doing YouTube. So that was an attractive factor. Our media buyers were all trained up really good. And we did have a book of clients that it just didn't make sense for us to keep all of our current operations. And we were hiring people like they become family. You really like these people. So those were a lot of things that motivated the sale. Hey, you guys actually would get more benefit from these resources than us. So acquire this business from us. Mine, my acquisition, I would say in reality is a little more lackluster, a little less exciting. The acquisition part, the great part was all the money we made during COVID because we thought COVID was going to shut us down. Like every business, everyone in the world thought they were going out of business, but everyone Mm -hmm. pulling away from advertising. Now everyone's sitting at home watching YouTube. It was an opportunity. We just didn't know it. But yeah, that's, I already knew the owner of StrikePoint Media for years before that and Mm -hmm. see him at conferences and we would talk and people were very curious about the things we were doing and we earned a name for ourselves and had Mm -hmm. a good brand, had some other good clients on our roster as well. Great processes set up the office in the Philippines and basically just hashing it out over the phone with him because I know he was interested. He was talking a lot about the roll up stuff at the time. But the way I was right. looking at it was like, I was overwhelmed by that point and getting burned out and losing my way a bit. Cause it, like you said, I never set out to build an agency. It wasn't like my goal necessarily. I make moves and I get in the middle, like buying the real estate and I'm like, Oh, this is a headache. Good and bad, like good friendships, all this stuff. Yeah. But that was for me, it was like, Oh, I just need to, I need to be able to step back from all this. And they're much larger than we are. They continued to operate out of our office for a while. Then eventually the employees went remote. They still have an interest in the office in the Philippines. And that's been spun up to another business that offers 
So I believe they do the work for StrikePoint, but they also offer video editing services. So like if a person wanted to hire either a part-time or a full-time video editor, you've got EverWork, which is this brand that they spun up afterwards. My former partner worked with them. He stayed on and worked with them to develop this. But they'll offer full-time video editing services, so you would have an editor working on your hours surrounded by other senior editors, processes in place. They got to come into work every day. It's a good environment. They love their jobs. So they've made moves like that. So that was an attractive component as well, which for me, I wasn't really, it wasn't built to be an attractive component, but it comes back to, oh, the systems and processes that we have that can deliver value. That was something that was very valuable aside from just here are, here's the book of clients because we were working in more of a way that was, I would say more like laboratory kind of thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is working now versus this is a predictable machinery that's going to work for years. So two different, two different things, right? So processes and systems, machinery that works year in, year out. Here's what you build the clients versus this little lab over here where we could make $500 in a day, or we could make 70 grand in a day, two separate things. That that goes to something, which I think is really another important lesson on this, that there are different kinds of buyers and they buy for different reasons. And yours was a buy versus build decision. How long would it have taken somebody to learn all those learnings that you had for years and built up a team to do it and the systems and processes? If someone's at a cold start, that would have been incredibly hard. So in those situations where you don't necessarily have a financial buyer, a buyer who's like a private equity or a larger similar agency where they're bolting on revenue, in that circumstance, you look for a strategic and you say, okay, what I have here is something that could be leveraged by someone else in a way that we aren't leveraging it. And that's a multiplicative value to them. So it's just a different kind of acquisition that I don't think people think about. But if you're mm-hmm. in this situation, it, it merits researching who are those people who might buy me, who might have that synergy in that way. Yeah, and I think if people are in the business and like you said, you're connecting with other people, going to the conferences, hey, how can I help you? Your competitors, right? Let's say they're yeah. two design studios. I want all the business. No, I want all the business. You know what I mean? But those people that you're connecting with and helping, it could be a someone that's a freelancer, a small agency, or a competitor. Three years down the road, they might be acquiring your agents. These people that we're connecting with can... There could be, you could acquire them, they could acquire you. So yep. people are competitors on some level, but there's really more work, potential work that could go around than we could really all do, I think. So better to come out of your shell and connect with people. For yeah. anybody who's not quite where you went. Yeah. So thinking back to what you said earlier about trying to provide value people at conferences, maybe it's a freelancer or a small agency, maybe it's a competitor. You've got a design studio of 10 and they do too. And you all want the same business and you hate each other. And like this whole mindset of competition, we want the business. I think we're both like abundance mindset. There's probably more potential business that just hasn't been drummed up yet that it's more than we all could handle. So if we connect those two points, going back to what you said about, Hey, make connections with people, help each other out. Maybe this client, I actually know that, let's say for, let's make a big example. Oh, they, this client really wants Facebook ads. And I know this other agency, like they crush it at that. And Mm -hmm. that's going to be a distraction for us, but I just sent them a huge win. You should be collaborating. We all need each other. 
So in tying that into you asking like how our acquisition went, it was very much on that level. Like we knew Jeremy, the CEO, wasn't just a unknown person and where we're not understanding mm-hmm. their business or their motives or their goals or even have a friendship with. And I actually had maybe, I want to say two or three others that had reached out as well, just literally like on Facebook Messenger. Hey, are you thinking mm-hmm. about selling your agency? Because like I said, everyone was asking this kind of thing and they were right. further ahead than we were. All the mm-hmm. agencies that asked were further ahead than us and I think had acquired eight other little agencies. So just gobbling them up. But what we had done was initiated training programs because we were hiring local people. So we would hire people that didn't have marketing backgrounds, but put them through extensive training design programs of they're going to do all this on digital marketer. And they would mm-hmm. train for a month and a half. And then I'd be mentoring them and then they'd become shortcut to getting really good, but also mm-hmm. like a real strict hiring process. So I think we had good processes and we had good people and they knew what they were doing then pair that with, it'd be like if I was selling an agency to you, we have been are well acquainted and fast forward a, a year or so. And then it's, if you were buying an agency, there's the conversation right there. Similarly for me, I'd known the, I'd known my buyer for quite some time and actually had hired his agency to help me internally with some things. And that led very naturally because they were t- about 10 times the size that we were into that discussion when he soft asked me at one point, would we ever be interested? And then I was like, ah, I'm not in that space. And then he asked me again six months later. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm in that space. So those organic conversations, you never know how they come about. Yeah. Network, real network. Yeah. You really have no enemies out there. You shouldn't ever think that way. Yeah. The enemy is like just sitting down and, or the challenge is, look, the work is hard enough. <laughs> That's enough challenge. Right. You don't have to fight <laughs> others to the Complete, death. No people drama, right. any of that. Let's just focus on the goal. And if we can lift each other up, yep. because sometimes like we would, our clients would cross over as well. Like we might be working mm-hmm. with the same client because a lot of these companies in our industry, they're working with multiple agencies because they're just so much traffic. So it's like a, can feel competitive, but you can never... I say don't let yourself think that because it's that's just a drama story right there. It's not worth it. But that goes back to touch on our idea of niching down because when you are niched down, everything is less competitive. And is someone really going to leave your agency, which is the expert in one thing, to go with a generalist who might offer it as an add-on? It's also, that's a moat. So as you connect all of these dots here, thinking about you can collaborate because if you've niched down, you have very few true competitors. Yeah. And there's probably an experimentation phase before niching down to really know what works. And you could go Mm -hmm. 80% niche, but quietly try to explore some other niches. Oh, I heard that lead gen in solar was just awesome. Let's try it. You might try that for three months and dedicate 10% of your resources and go, oh, wait a minute. I don't want to do that. (laughs) I always like to carve out a little bit of laboratory time. And for people like me, it keeps it interesting. But then keeping your eye on the goal. Yeah, I want a sellable business. I want a functioning business. You know, that you can probably break it out like that as well, right? To where mm-hmm. quietly take some deals like, oh, I'm not advertising that we specialize in this. But my friend asked me and I said, we'll give it a go. And I was open that right. we haven't tried this, but we're willing to give it a shot. I'm always an advocate for having somewhat of a laboratory if you can, unless you're mm-hmm. just sure about one thing and it's going well. And you're like, I just need to keep going at this. Then that could be the right choice. But otherwise, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's nice. These little experiments can take off, these little pivots. But you really got to manage that, though. And my partner and I, he was more an operations guy. 
and I'm the kind right. of the idea guy, the, what do they call it? Integrator. The, he's hundred percent integrator. I'm a hundred percent innovator. So you've right. got to balance that out. So partnerships, that's another tip. Yep. You've mm -hmm. got to realize that these, you, you've got to have all the attributes to run something. And that might not be a one person. <laughs> it might be, <laughs> could be a partner, exactly. could be a partner. So yeah. that's another thing to look at. To wrap up for people, if you were talking to somebody who's ambitious about eventually selling their agency, maybe it's not the thing that they're burning on right now, but they know it's in their head. Someday I want to get out from under this thing, I want to have my cash out three to five years from now. What are some of the big tips, takeaways that you'd give them to focus on now? I would say the thing we've been hammering home about niching down is mm -hmm. big. I would just reemphasize that. Something that we didn't really bring up I can just talk about it briefly is there are agencies that are basically, they've basically become brand owners, right? They're doing lead generation. They've created an entire mm -hmm. brand and then they partner, let's say with a debt relief company and it's Bob's debt relief. I'm going to make up a stupid right. name there, but you build your whole brand and you advertise it. You do the SEO and things like that. So that would be a tip. I would think about owning a brand and then partnering mm -hmm. with someone who only wants to do fulfillment. If that relationship goes south or it's, you don't like working with them anymore, they don't want to pay you enough. Someone else will more than gladly take your leads. You, as an agency owner, you have to look for something because if you're running traffic and someone just puts you in their Google accounts and you run it and they're looking at everything, that's another reason why we were affiliates because we wanted some IP of our own because we were like, get in their Google accounts. They see everything we do. We're doing a good job. They want to save money. They kick us out. You really have right. nothing to hold on to. But mm -hmm. if you become an affiliate, that was the other aspect is we wanted to have some of our intellectual property. Let us make the sausage without you breathing down our necks. That was the biggest factor is it wasn't even necessarily the money. I just wanted to work independently of the client because I right. did things they would never let me do and was way more successful than doing it in tandem with them. That's just me right. going guns blazing against clients. I think we can all have these war stories, but if I'm untethered, unchained and I do whatever I want. So that was another motivating factor. But if we take that a step further, you can go as far as to build a brand around everything you're mm -hmm. doing. If you're in a niche, if you're doing solar or debt relief or whatever it may be, or something on investment advice, you start your own newsletter and then you're marketing other people's products. If you can own the brand, then you've taken some of the power away. And I bet somewhere in there, I don't know if you have a lot of knowledge on this or I've talked to other people who have done this. I know several, but you just have more that could be worth a lot in and of itself because websites yeah. can be worth a lot, whether it's paid traffic, SEO, but just the brand you like try to develop a brand that you're proud of, but you're all you are is marketing, right? You're not providing the solar panels, but you're, it becomes mm -hmm. less about the client, but more about your brand. And then the lead or whatever becomes a packaged up thing. I think yep. if I were doing this all over, I would be working on that. And I could satisfy some of my curiosities. Yeah, let's engage so-and-so for SEO. Let's really make this site look great. Let's try this. Let's try that. And you can build some brand equity and still be an agency because you're just in the marketing space. You're not in fulfillment. You don't have a product. Yep. But you've taken more ownership, whereas I always felt extremely vulnerable. Oh, I do a good job. You can just kick me out of your business manager and I'm done. That was yeah. the biggest. That was the biggest problem. So that's like my big 
piece of advice. If I were starting over, I would be completely focused on that because I think there's value in the agency. But then in the mm-hmm. media property, which it isn't a far stretch for you to be able to do that if you're niched down. The brand could have an incredible value. And I know multiple people doing this in agencies in the e-com space, and they'll find somebody to white label something. Or even if you want to look for ultra successful examples in the world, front point security. It's, it looks like a security company like First Alert or any one of those large security companies. All it really is a front end to alarm.com. But here mm. you have a multi-hundred million dollar company, which is a little more than a brand and a call center for essentially taking calls. And all of the technology, all of the stuff is on the back end. They just made a little veneer of marketing in front of it. And yep. they've become since a lot more than that. But it's a model where the consumer's understanding of who's in the marketplace creates the value. And Mm. agencies are great platforms for that because you see what actually works in terms of customer acquisition. Yeah. You're an agency, you're providing services, you kept the clients at arm length. They can't look at how the sausage is made. That is relieving 90% of your problems. That's relieving a lot. And I would say a lot of people would be shaking their heads because we always have these Clients drive us insane. We're on 10 meetings and nothing was accomplished and we can't do the work and that's all these problems. So I would do that. Nowadays, I'm just more in, of, in a consulting phase. Like I'm not wanting this. Mm. I'm just like, okay, I'll lend you my brain power. I'm going to collaborate with these cool people, a copywriter I enjoy working with and you just pay me and I do a good job and I'm just using my reputation to, I want to get a, a good client and work with them, but not have to deal even with managing a team. But it, your question, the caveat is if I were trying to scale up towards an exit and I was right. in that mentality, which I have been at some point, like that's what I would be doing for sure. Cause I think it answers a bunch of problems. And do you want to sell as an agency exiting? Sure. Do that. Or are you a brand that's up for sale that has these employees? Like mm-hmm. you're combined everything. And I feel like you're protecting yourself and you're storing away value and what you're exactly. building in, a, in another way, just besides a client yeah. book. But yet you still have a client book. Exactly. It's best of both worlds. Thank you, Jason. This has been super informative. A lot of great stories about the things to do, things not to do. So thanks for joining. And where can people learn more about you, what you're doing, and maybe follow you some more? Thanks, Raj. I really appreciate it. It's been great talking with you. I don't have any real formal social media stuff. I'm really just getting into this whole self-promotion game. I've, I connect with other marketers and such on Facebook. That's what I use that for. Facebook, LinkedIn. If I look inactive on there, not that active. Uh, I'm intending to be. I'm start putting some clips out and such. Personal Facebook, LinkedIn. I have a landing page website. It tells a little bit about me, but I'm like the um, hairstylist who doesn't style their own hair. I'm too busy working on everyone else's stuff. But right. those are the down and dirty easy ways. Just a Facebook personal profile. And it's not a page or anything. Or LinkedIn. That's probably a really good one to connect on. Jason Stogstill. You'll probably find me there. All right. Perfect. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for sharing everything about your agency exit and what led you there. And so until then, thanks very much.